Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Grace Parra has broken out as a star contributor and panelist for The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore since she joined the late-night Comedy Central talker in November 2015. But Parra thought she might just as well have enjoyed a career behind the scenes as a sitcom writer or perhaps as the star of her own late-night talk show. The Houston native did, after all, briefly co-host the misnamed-on-purpose white guy talk show on Fuse. Even before all that, Parra's early New York City experiences included performing with and even rooming with fellow future comedy stars as well as an NBC gig working for Conan O'Brien that continues to inspire her to this day. She tells me all about it, as well as her latest venture, a live talk show called Lady Freak. So let's get to it! Thank you so much for inviting me into your home. Of course. Well, thank you for coming all the way to my home. Well, you're such a superstar. I have to say, I don't know if you've heard this enough yet, but it's been a joy to watch you break out oh, as you. a correspondent on The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I haven't heard it. If you could just tell me three to five more times, that would really make my Sunday. Um, no, that's very sweet. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Because I know you've been on the cusp of stardom for a little while now, for a couple of years. Oh, gosh. With I... different deals and a late night talk show. Right, right. Fuse talk show yes. and writing and, and uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot. Doing deals with J-Lo. G- yeah, yeah, just casually hanging out, <laughs> swapping skin secrets. But now with uh, the nightly show and nightly nightly, <laughs> nightly which is, nightly. which has become like a, a star, it has become like a star feature of the show. It's a, it's a, it's a regular, yeah, it's a nice little, little recurring bit that we, we end up doing, um, you know, pretty regularly now. It's it's always it's one of my favorite parts of the show for sure. And in this last week, I found out you uh, play guitar rather well. Yes, also. yeah. Well, well, thank you. I have been playing guitar since I was fourteen. That's what I wanted maybe? to know. Was that the yeah. first instrument you played? The first instrument. I played a little piano prior to that, but okay. was never 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 really took. Um, I uh, but yeah, I I decided you know in the era of Lilith Fair in the mid late nineties, mm-hmm. I was like. Damn, that sounds fun. So I, uh, my, my dad, who is an engineer and now retired, but he, uh, my, my parents are all, are both from Mexico. My whole family's from Mexico, but he would go on business trips a lot to Mexico and come back to Houston, Texas, which is where we're from. And so, uh, I kept expressing an interest like, man, maybe I should play guitar. I want to learn guitar. I wonder what that's like. So in the greatest gift he's ever given me besides my own life, one day he, uh, came back from a business trip in Mexico with this, shitty uh spanish guitar and it was it was awesome and, and i i taught myself and um i've been playing ever since so when you started playing guitar at 14 mm-hmm. what did you imagine your adult life would be like oh well i pretty immediately afterwards started my first all-girl rock band called metanoia which is greek for radical change uh and so i immediately was like okay th- we're gonna be rock stars yeah and the re- you know we were called metanoia because we were going to radically change the face of the music industry still might happen <laughs> Still could happen. Still waiting. There's still time. There's still time. There's still time. Everybody else is married with kids. There's still time. It's going to happen. <laughs> By the time you listen to this podcast, it may already be happening. <laughs> the metanoia revolution is poised for, for a breakout. Well, I mean, this year has seen a lot of crazy things that people wouldn't predict. So Sure. Donald Trump. Right. Sure. Kanye being broke. What's that about? Who would have guessed? I don't know. I think about that a lot lately. 
Because I'm just like, that is a guy who is just very famous. He's just very famous. And right. one naturally associates fame with, with uh, riches. But I guess such is not the case. Or is he? Is this a bit? I. That's, an, that's one thing I've been thinking about over the last, especially the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Is everything just a bit? Right. So often I, I'll read something in the news and I'll go, I bet that's a hoax. Right. Right. And more often than not, it does turn out to be a hoax. Right. Everybody's just doing a bit. Well, I mean, Nathan Fielder definitely is. Right. In a brilliant way. But in, but in a way... But that's made for television as a bit. It's not... It is, but I... Like uh, so many things you hear, like, oh my God, can you believe they found so-and-so? And then it turns out, oh, they were just making that up. Right. For the media attention. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Or even like this, this new knife that just... Emerged yes. in the OJ trial. Yes. What the fuck is that about? Come and on. How does it emerge now? Why? Right. Because the miniseries is yeah, happening. I guess. I guess. Yeah. We live in a world of uh, fabrication and falsities and words like falsity, which I don't know is right. Falsehood certainly that's a word. I'm not sure the falsity is. How much when you go to work each morning uh-huh. at the nightly show do you think about how to make fun of poke? holes in, mm. make light of the craziness that's happening. Oh, uh, constantly, I think. I think constantly. I think, you know, it's uh, this is such a fun show to work on because there's so much room for both intellectual and social justice gravitas mm-hmm. in what we say and what we preach, if you will. But there's also so much room for comedy. So, And some bits that we do are just straight up, you know, just just satire just right. you know like nightly nightly for example it's like how there have been so many years of shows like extra and you know tmz or whatever that haven't really been parodied on late night is a, a blessing to us because it's like ah oh, okay great we can we can do that we can kind of get in there right um yeah i think constantly constantly because you know comedy really is the number one thing on a show like this so the more we can find that um the better. I, I definitely am at a point where I can't quite. I don't exactly know when to turn it off because you know we we do four shows a week. So Monday through Thursday we're taping a new show. Friday we still go into the office, work all day, writing, pitching ideas, whatnot. Um, but because uh, it's an election year, every night there's a new debate or a new town hall or a new uh, primary or caucus. Some some results that are being that are coming in. So the there's like a you know I can't just go home at 8 p.m. and be like oh, okay get some sleep and get ready for the next day. It's like all right CNN what you got for me Anderson tell me talk to me what do we have and then it's uh, then I go to bed thinking about it I wake up thinking about it. It has not been great for my anxiety, but, you know. <laughs> How much did you follow politics when you were a kid in Houston? A lot. A, a disgusting amount. I majored in political science. Uh, the Daily Show has been a huge inspiration to me from the moment that it started, like mm-hmm. the Craig Kilborn era even. I was like, this, I like this. This is politics plus comedy. I like this. <laughs> I was that kid in high school uh, who, in uh, during the 2000 election, when mm-hmm. there was that brief period in November, December, when we did not know if Gore or Bush was going to win. We where, still don't really know. We still don't really know, Sean. You're right. <laughs> about that where i would uh, carry a little am fm radio with me a little handheld mm-hmm. and in between classes and during lunch i would sit and listen and I'd be like what's gonna happen ladies anybody else care nope nobody okay gonna be a virgin for the next five years still and you know that was very much my life so i, I loved it i don't i don't did know you, why did you get involved in school politics like student government i was run yeah for, run for student council and- i was even at columbia actually even in college i was i definitely was into that and not I never loved like 
the election process. Like, none of that really interested me. It does to me as a, a comedian and as, mm-hmm. an, as an observer. When I was like doing student council and stuff, it was more just to see how things ran and being attracted to the personalities of people who were in student council, a lot of Tracy Flick types, which was funny to me to observe. Right. And But also, you know, like I admit, I'm a, I'm a go-getter myself, so it felt like I was in that right crowd. Not like I did it in high school, but I weirdly did do it in college at Columbia. Had you been to New York before? Um, yes, my, I have a brother who went to Sarah Lawrence College, okay. who's 13 years older than me. And so when, when I was uh, an early teen around my metanoia years, uh, we would go to, to visit him at college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I knew New York not very well, you know, I'd just well, gone Sarah a couple Lawrence times. Sarah Lawrence is upstate, so it's not... it, Right, so it's not too close, but we would always, like, stay in New York and then travel up there for a day or so to Bronxville okay. and come back down. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I knew when I was looking at colleges, I was like, I really want to go, I feel like I got to go to big city and New York felt, felt right. Right. Whereas going to Rice. Oh, uh, well, no, I, you know, <laughs> stay in Houston, stay in Houston. No, my parents really Houston's wanted a big that. City. Houston's a big city. And, and I have a lot of friends. I used to like in high school, we would go hang out at Rice and then, yeah. you know, in college, I had some friends who went there. Rice is beautiful. Beautiful. I should have thought more about going there. I mean, not, I'm very happy that I went to Columbia, but Rice I almost is went there. To Rice, really? I, I flew down there as a high school senior for one of those weekend really? visits where you stay with people. You stay with, I guess, freshmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay with them in their dorm room and experience the university. And you liked it? I did. Not but enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was also a freakish uh, freezing rain weekend. Oh, weird. Which Houston never gets. No, but that's it miserable. shut the city down. Yeah, 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 yeah. It didn't didn't impress me much. That would be terrible. No. Like now, like, it, right that's now. That's not why I want to go to school in Texas. No, God, I want to no. go there for the heat. For the, the heat. For the sass. The culture. Oh, yeah. No, I do love Texas. Reason. It took me leaving Texas to love Texas. Okay. Really did. How, you know, we're in your apartment here yes. in New York. How does this compare to your first dorm room or living <laughs> experience in New York City? Um, let's see. There's a, there's a kitchen, which is really important to me. Uh, I think I maybe had like a hot pot my mm-hmm. first uh, year out of college. Um, and I love to cook. I love to cook. So that's like a, the, uh, I can't, I can't negotiate on that. I'm a big, big into that. My mom taught me how to cook. I miss LA because LA has, I think, better produce and naturally bigger kitchens. I, I'm, I have one here that's okay, but, um, I love to cook, man. I love it. It's like real therapeutic for me. So that's a different – oh, and also I have Fredito here, who this is my dog, who's a 10-pound miniature pincher, who's a little shaky right now because he's like, what's going on? Um, <laughs> why are there microphones? Oh, why are there microphones? But, but yeah. your first living experience as a student in Columbia – Yeah. Was much smaller. Well, you know, we lived on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, Columbia is unlike NYU and I think a lot of other colleges here in the city in that there is like a real campus and real sort of convivial campus environment, class, okay. classic, classically coll- collegiate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I remember I lived with three girls. There were four of us in like two bedrooms and they were very nice, but I was very busy with improv. So I was like never there really. Um, How did you get involved with improv for the first time? I had been doing theater in, in like, forever, mm-hmm. like, in, in high school, um, in middle school, just forever. I don't so know. you had backup plans in case Metanoia didn't <laughs> take off? <laughs> I did. I did, yes. It was either being an, uh, a rock star or being a, uh, an improviser, I guess. 
Um, I, uh, yeah, so in fact, Josh, we were just talking about Silicon Valley. Josh Brenner, um, on Silicon Valley is mm-hmm. a good friend of mine and he also went to school in Houston. So we used to do community theater together okay. in high school in Houston, even though we went to different schools. Um, later I wrote for him on Glory Days and, uh, now of course he's, sh- you know, shining right. on Silicon Valley. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I got involved in improv. There was there were just auditions at Columbia, and it was like the, I want to say the first week of school mm-hmm. or something. And I was like, I'm here. I guess I'll just do all the things. So I went out and auditioned for it, and then I got in. And once you got into the school's improv troupe, you're in it like you know forever. So right. I was just in it for the next four years, and I was like, oh great. So th- that set me on a path of like you know rehearsing and performing three four times a week um, with people. Like, oh, I don't know, Jenny Slate and I was just Dave Lehman. Yeah, they were all, we all did improv together. Now, amazing. Did, now, did you know from the get-go that, you know, improvising with, with Gabe and Jenny, that that you all would have careers in comedy? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I knew they were, they were a, a few years older than me, and I was always like, their talent knows no bounds. I mm-hmm. knew that very early on. And I... I want to say that I knew they that they were like pretty vocal about like yeah we want to do something like comedy after college, and I remember I was still in school. They had graduated and would perform around town um, with people uh, with some other people that we we did improv with, um, and I would go see them and just be like they're doing it. They're to me like performing in you know at UCB and in small basements across New York City was like making it. Right. I was like this is great. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I definitely knew like they were just crazy talented, crazy. Cr- the amount of talent that came out of this one weird sliver of an era, like Greta Gerwig went to school with us. Kate McKinnon went to school with us. She was my roommate junior year, my sweetmate junior year. Like I can't, I look back and I'm like, oh my God. And, and a lot of women, by the way, especially women in comedy. Right. It's pretty remarkable. So how did you end up being sweet mates with Kate McKinnon? Well, Kate and I did um, the Varsity Show together, which is this this like musical theater comedy that Columbia creates every year. Mm-hmm. Sort of, it's sort of like um, it's the Harvard version is like Hasty Pudding, okay. sort of like that. Um, and we did that together freshman year, and we're just friends. And you know, I, maybe we did some other shows together. I don't really remember, but we. Um, yeah, it just just happened junior year. We were like, let's let's do this. So it was two of us and a couple of other friends. And um, it was delightful. She's just, she's divine. I have nothing but the most just squeaky clean, happy, good <laughs> thought feelings for her. I just adore her to pieces. Now, at that point, when you were roommates junior year, which which one of you was more strongly ambitious toward becoming a comedian slash actress? Oh, good question. At I, that point. I think... I think both of us were – I would probably say Kate was, though, because remember, I was majoring in political science. And, okay. and I, at the time, was also flirting with the idea of going to law school. So, like, that summer in between junior and senior year, I actually took the LSATs. And mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I do this. I guess I do this. So, And that was basically just my uh, my parents who were like, you know that we moved here from Mexico to give you a strong education. You should consider – doing us proud by going into a profession right. profession. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So <laughs> I considered it, but then I didn't go anywhere. I was like, I can't really do this. It sounds, uh, I know there's quite an age gap, but this sounds a little bit like Greg Giraldo. Oh. Who went to Columbia, ended up going to law school. That's right. After that, before eventually realizing, no. What am I doing? Even though this is what the family thought. <laughs> right. I'm really a comedian. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think... I feel blessed that, like, you know, I found 
this little uh, niche of politics and comedy with Nightly Show. And, right. You know, there is a very much a world in which knowing politics and knowing law and having an interest in that is actually is actually beneficial in comedy. Wait, so how far you took the LSATs? Did you apply no, to law school? Didn't apply. Didn't apply. By senior year I was started interning at NBC that year. Okay. As um for the Today Show, which is really funny. That was the year that Katie Couric was like out and Meredith Vieira was in and there was like this drama and I was like, Ooh, this is funny. Now they had four hours? Do they have four they hours of today's show? Did not at that point? yet, because that was that came with Hoda Kotb right. and Kathy Lee, who I I think were like a year. Oh, or that two Hoda. After. That Hoda, yeah. Hoda Kotb. <laughs> Hoda Kotb, I know. Hoda Henderson, <laughs> still struggling in uh, Tennessee right now. <laughs> so, um, how did they yeah. divvy up the page duties for today's show? Oh, um, well, that I was an intern first, and then mm-hmm. I became a page after I graduated, okay. and that was that was a real like real quick thing because I you can't be a page until you graduate. So I graduated, you know, in like June and I was a page and mm-hmm. just over the summer um, for three months. And then I got a job working at Conan. And for those first three months, I think it's still the same way. But when you're doing the NBC page program, the first few months, you're just um, like giving tours. So I'd give like six tours a day. I lost my voice multiple times. I was like always wearing the wrong footwear and like. I felt like it just disgusting, but it was, fu- it was fun. Like giving all these tours around 30 rock and feeling part of the, like part of the family was very cool. That kind of job. It's important to have comfortable footwear. It's probably so the most you... important thing, but I, I was in that, like, how that, did you not figure that out? I quickly? know it was like that youthful era where you're like looks and visage mm-hmm. image matters more than anything. And I was like, I'm in 30 rock. Who knows who I'm going to run into? And the difference between a flat heel and a two inch heel is really going to make more of an impression. I don't know. I was, it was dumb. I, I think had I stuck with, had I, had I not gotten a full-time job at Conan and if I was paid for a little bit longer, I probably would have wisened up. So how did you get the Conan job? Well, um, they were looking for an assistant at the time. And I think, I think it probably still works the same way. Sometimes, um, the page program will be like if a show or a department at NBC, especially in that building is looking for kind of an entry level person, they'll Mm -hmm. go to the page program and say, Hey, who, who do you got there, sir? And, um, they'll, you know, send a few of us out to interview. So I remember interviewing for it and, and I was like, I love Conan. I would love this job. And um, and then I got hired as the assistant to the line producer. And what job. does that entail? It is by far the least creative job on the show <laughs> because you're dealing with the line producer who only deals with money. So it entailed writers coming to my boss's office and being like, hello, I need – a white Siberian tiger for this sketch and then being told, I'm sorry, that costs $750,000 and you've got like 200 bucks. What can you do with that? And they're like, okay, we'll take it. So it was a lot of learning, like the, the sort of base mechanics of how much comedy costs, which right. is actually an amazing lesson to learn. Yeah. I was just going to say that learning the building blocks of making a show. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which was, which was awesome. And then of course, you know, getting to work with Conan and I happened to be there during the writer's strike, which was mm. one of the more, unbelievably like weird and also very, very ultimately cool learning experiences to have. Um, I also can't speak positively enough about Conan who is, I just, I mean, he's, he's amazing. He on a daily basis continues to inspire me daily. That is real cheesy, but I mean it. (laughs) No, I mean, there was just a profile of him in the Washington post that talked about how even his last tonight show, he didn't plan on saying what he said, but it turned out to be so inspirational. To, so inspirational. To so many people. I think about that quote all the time. How did you end up leaving that show for the next thing? I was um, 
well, you know, one of the other awesome things about working at that show was I learned very quickly that the writer, the writer is king. And especially in late night, you know, it's really the writers whose stuff, you know, they're the creative nucleus of, of any show. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the, I was like, you know, the writers are really the ones whose, whose vision gets up on television. So if I'm going to do comedy at that point, I was very like, I'm going to do comedy no matter what I have to one way or another. Um, I was like, I, I feel like writing is the most imperative you got to learn how to write. And all through college, I'd been doing a lot of improv and a lot of sketch and a lot of performing, but not a lot of writing. And because I wasn't majoring in writing, I think a lot of comedians ended up majoring in like English or maybe creative writing, but I, I was not one of those types. So I was like, I need to learn. So I, w I took like a couple sketch writing classes and I just watched a lot and like read up on how to write scripts. And I wrote a spec script and I submitted it to this program called NBC's Writers on the Verge, which is out in LA. And um, somehow miraculously got into it. They were like, hey, do you want to leave your paid job with a boss that you love at a great uh, location in New York to come earn no money um, to be in this, like, nine-week program in Los Angeles? And I'm like, I, yeah, I guess. Like, I was – yeah, I, it was – I had to. I felt like at that time, because I was working as an assistant and then as a researcher, you know, you're on the production side of TV. But to be a writer, performer, you kind of have to divorce yourself and go, like, balls to the wall into writing and performing. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to make any money doing this, but – might as well. And also L.A. at that point seemed very, very divine to me. I was ready for that jump. So that's – yeah, so that's why I moved out to L.A. But that but that Writers on the Verge program, that's not paid? Not paid, And it doesn't no. promise you anything at the end of the nine weeks? It doesn't promise, but there's like – there's a, every effort to try to get you representation and mm -hmm. get meetings and stuff, which is what happened. Okay. I, I had been signed with Molly Mandel prior to that, um, who uh, is still my manager, who's amazing. And uh, she then, through her and then through the program, I got you know agent meetings and and landed at UTA, which is where I still am as well. Okay. Um, those those guys have been my team since the get go, which I'm very grateful for. And I think the first time I was aware of you, I think you might have sent me a video or I saw a video of you hosting a talk show. Yeah, yeah, probably the really late morning show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so this. Coincide. My move to LA coincided with the move of a, f a good friend of mine from college, who also did improv with Jenny and Gabe, uh, whose name is Paul Wright. Mm -hmm. Still a good friend of mine today, and uh, he had gotten a job out in LA, and we were like, "I think this is serendipity. We should probably move. We should probably move in together." And so we did. And uh, Paul's also a comedian and performer, and you know, we had been performing forever, so we were like, "Why don't we just start a show? No one's going to give us our own talk show. No one's going to do it. Why don't we just, we just fucking do it ourselves?" <laughs> So that's what we did. And we were like, well, let's do a morning talk show, but let's have it be the very last morning talk show of the day at 10 o'clock at night. So we called it the really late morning <laughs> show. And it ran for, for a few years in L.A. We got, like, great guests. We had a house band. Um, our friend Ludwig Gorenson, who is a composer who composes a million TV shows like Community and New Girl and did the music for um, – uh, Creed and like just a ton of a ton of of sh uh, movies. Uh, he was our guitarist and composer too. So we just met this incredible circle of up and coming comedians and musicians. How long did show. it take you to put all those pieces together? Um, I mean, every month it would it would develop into something more. Like I want to say maybe the first couple times we didn't have a band and then we did have a band. And we, uh, my friend Liz Bonsack, who's a producer from Conan, who's now about to produce the Olympics casually, no big deal, <laughs> just killing it. Um, what, we signed her on to produce the show mm -hmm. too, so we had somebody you know helping us book and. Where were you produce. doing it? Uh, we did it at M Bar, okay, which I think is now defunct in Hollywood, and at Io West. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we did it at those two places. Okay. 
And so at that point where you're like, oh, this is the path I want to be on. Yeah. At that point, yeah, I, I was as far as performing goes, but like, I was I wanna also. Be, I want to be a improviser. Then I want to be a writer for Conan or someone like Conan. Right. And then it's like, no, I want my own show. Uh, yeah. That's something that I actually um, sort of battled with for a while because one other thing that happened was I started getting hired to write for sitcoms in L.A. So I wrote for a show called Jonas L.A., the Jonas Brothers show on Disney, which was amazing. I wrote for a show called Glory Days on TBS. Did you have a favorite Jonas? Um, I was most sexually attracted to Nick, mm -hmm. who I think might have been 17 at the time, but he's not now, so I think right. retroactively that's fine to say, right? Sure. Great. Um, he, yeah, he actually – well, I guess they were all nice, they, mm -hmm. but the, I think Nick – I don't know. Like you can kind of see even now Nick's career is kind of taken off in its own way. And I think he was just sort of the – he was just the, the, the Michael of, you know, the group. Um, very Michael nice. Jordan, Michael Jackson. Oh, both really. Michael and Michael have issues. <laughs> He's the, the Michael Ian Black of, <laughs> of the Not Jones the Michael Brothers. Showalter. The Michael Showalter. Um, so uh, – So the right – did this all come out of the writers on the verge? It did, yeah. I mean okay. because of that – you know, that got me signed to UTA and then mm -hmm. UTA started sending me out on meetings and I was writing so much and I was very much like this. Yeah, this is great. I mean, to write on a sitcom short and I can perform on the side. That was really what my life in LA was like for many years. The, but what happened is like, as time went on, you know, when you're writing, it can be very difficult to find time to perform as well. And in the midst of kind of going from show to show to show, I was like, this is fun. What's happening with my performing? I feel like I'm not able to do it as much and I miss it. So there came a point where I sold a show to MTV that J-Lo produced that sort of prevented me from being able to work as a staff writer on a show because it was like an exclusive deal. Um, and that's when I actually for the first time had time to start like auditioning. And I was like, I think I really want to start performing more. So I did the CBS Diversity Showcase. And that was back in 2012, 2013, um, where I met like Jen Bartels, who's now my co-host for Lady Freak. I met amazing people like Nicole Byer and Allison Rich and John Milheiser. We had like this, an, again, another like serendipitous little sliver right. of time with these. Right, Nicole and Allison now have a new Saturday Night yeah, Show that's debuting on Fox. on Fox. Yes, which I'm super excited about. They're going to murder it. Those ladies are so talented. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so, so had it not been for that little blip on the radar where I was actually able to, to have time to audition and perform, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have kind of been able to make this transition. But in doing so... I was like, this feels right. Rather than going back and being a staff writer on a sitcom that wasn't my own, um, I, you know, I'm now thinking like, ultimately, of course, I want to work towards going back as a sitcom writer, but on a show that I, am, you know. Now in. you mentioned selling the show to MTV. What was that yes. show? It was called the Untitled Grace Parra Project. Okay, uh, and it was basically um, kind of semi autobiographical about a girl, a young Latina girl who graduates mm -hmm. from college in New York, is obsessed with New York, intent on staying there, but can't get a job anywhere. This is when the job market was particularly yes. gruesome. The Great Recession. Uh, yes, the Great Recession. So Not she, so, ha <laughs> so she has to move back in with her crazy Mexican family mm -hmm. in El Paso, Texas, and comedy ensues. Uh -huh. So, which was, you know, sort of, I, I love anything set in Texas because I'm from Texas originally and I love Texas. I love writing about Texas. I think when it's depicted, like I just think about King of the Hill, there are some great, great shows, but King of the Hill is really one of them. Um, <clears throat> a lot of, a lot of stuff out there in Texas is really inspirational to me. So, um, but you know, that's, that's a classic case of like that show was in development for like a year and a half and it just kept getting not canceled but kept getting you know let's do rewrites let's bring in new showrunners let's do this it's that nobody wanted to say no to it which was good and bad it just was in kept you in limbo kept me in limbo for a very long time yeah now is that how you 
met Jennifer Lopez? That is how I met Jennifer Lopez, yes. And then that relationship bred um, – so she at the, at the time was developing a network called Nuvo, which right. was a television network that was all Latino-based comedy. So she um, and her team were like, you know, we know you perform. I'd been, again, doing my show, Really Late Morning Show, and doing some YouTube stuff. So they were like, would you want to be a contributor? That's my dog, Fredito. Who Would you want to be a contributor on this show um, called The Collective? And I was like, yes, great, let's do it. So that was my first, like, weekly position on a show. Right, because I remember you were making videos. Yeah. What was the web series called? There were a few of them. Um, Para of Your World was one. Um uh, probably what was one, I did a series called Frida Kahlo, Junior Marketing Exec, where I played oh, right. Frida Kahlo, which is uh, still one of my most favorite web series. Um, and uh, then I later did a series called Pretty Strong Opinions with Grace Parra, which is basically my like kind of take on, on – my John Oliver-esque take on things that are political and comedic in nature. Um, so then, then that led to the job at Fuse where I was hosting Like I Talk Show. Right, because at some point Jennifer Lopez's nouveau – Morphed into them taking over Fuse? Yes, yeah, that was kind of, I'm so sort of unclear how, what happened. All I know is that one day suddenly she runs Fuse and I'm like, okay. Right, I was getting different emails. Yeah. And yeah. I'm yeah, like, wait, yeah, yeah. what is it now? No, right. Nuvo is Fuse. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. So, so that's what was going on, um, which was awesome. And that was, a, that was, I mean, I still credit so much of where I am now with that time that I had at Fuse to, you know, host a, a late night talk show, co-host it with my friend Sorin Choksi. Right. What did you learn most in that brief period of having your own TV talk show? Well, there were a few things I learned. Uh, ratings matter a lot. Um, <laughs> which you know, even when you're on a channel that doesn't itself. Have yes, ratings? which is very curious. Um, and I learned a lot about the state of what it's like when you're on a smaller network versus on a bigger network. Not not just like oh, the, you know, the finances and how much mm. money you make, but also. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's a bit, it can be a bit volatile when, you know, there's a lot of television networks out there now, a lot. And because it takes time for a network to find an audience, to find a following, to find programming that they can both afford and that also works and gets numbers, there's, there ends up being a lot of just business changes that happen. Like, if, you know, when I was there, it went from being like independently owned and then MSG was involved and then like Massacre Garden, which is like, right. okay, I didn't know they owned television networks and then they co-owned and then Jennifer Lopez owned it. And now I think maybe somebody else is trying to sell it. All these like business things that you don't think about when you're just watching TV. I learned a lot about how that stuff matters. I think at any level of television creation, but probably especially when you're on a smaller network and one day to the next, you could just be told, hi, sorry, now we're an anime station owned by Sanrio, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which could always happen in television. How do you feel about Hello Kitty? <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, but I also learned something which I, I was grateful to learn that like we did 10 weeks of shows and we had four weeks, four it was four, I forget it was four or five new episodes a week. But I learned that at the end of that, I was still not exhausted, which is good. Which I was like, I might die three weeks in. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. But I learned like a, a lot about pacing myself, about like energy, and, you know, how much you exude and how you really have to go home at night and write and sleep and not like go party or whatever. Um, and I also learned that like my, my verve for late night and for the creation of new shows consistently is so, so strong and like, it makes me so happy that that kind of that I'm not so exhausted. Like I, I, there's like you know enough energy to kind of propel me forward. But you didn't stay in New York after that. You, I didn't. No, because you've moved back and forth a few <laughs> times in the last few years. I have, which is crazy. When I moved to LA the first time, I was like, I'm LA's. I'm 
perfect. I want to be here. Again, I'm from Texas originally. Mm -hmm. I love the space. I love the warmth. I like uh, avocado. There's a lot of avocado in California, less so here. It's good there. It's so not so good. secret magical ingredient in guacamole. <laughs> yes, not so secret. People know now. They didn't for a while. They know now. They're like, what is this avocado? <laughs> Have you heard of guacamole? <laughs> um, so I was, I was, I really was like set on just living there forever and ever. Still am, as a matter of fact. What is interesting is that I, I have now been pulled back twice in the past year to amazing jobs here in New York. Right. And I'm not going to say no to that. You know, it's like great. If New York is where I weirdly need to be now, then I will weirdly be here. So, tell me how how the nightly show came about. Well, um, it was a few a few things. First of all, I've seen the nightly show from the beginning. I right. never auditioned for it. I, it never came up really. Somehow, like I think I was at Fuse when it was happening, so I couldn't right couldn't do it. And, and then when Fuse ended, you decided to move back to Hollywood. Right. I went, so you weren't thinking about. I it. wasn't thinking about. I wasn't thinking about it. But there had been um, a moment. Prior to Fuse even, where I was up for writing job at The Daily Show. And I'd gotten through a few um, rounds, mm-hmm. which was amazing, which was just like, oh, this is great. Because, again, writing is still always central to what I do. So it was really nice to, you know, even though I perform a lot, of course I would take a job. You know, who wouldn't take a job as a writer on The Daily Show? That's an incredible opportunity. And so I knew that I was on their radar for that um, because The Daily Show is produced by John Stewart's company, Busboy, which also produces The Daily Show. And nothing ever came of that. I think that was right before John announced that he was leaving. Mm-hmm. So it, it uh, I don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they ended up hiring somebody or not. But um, it, nothing happened with that. And then when the nightly show, I, I heard from a couple people, a couple friends who I had on the show, on nightly show, who were like, I think they're going to be looking for a female contributor. We don't have one right now. And I was like, interesting. Well, if that ever happens, please let me know. That would be like a dream job. And then I, I want to say my manager was in communications with Busboy. Busboy was like, oh, yeah, Grace Barrow. We remember her. Yeah, we'd love to see a tape. So I did a tape for them, and um, and then they called me in to – like two days later, they called me in to uh, be in New York to do panel. And it was like, just so you know, this is kind of an audition. And I was like, no, no pressure. Just <laughs> And I had had a show that the night before Lady Freak uh, at UCB, which we had started doing at UCB in L.A., and – and I think my, my reps at the time were like, should you do Lady Freak? Because if not, then we can get you out to New York and then you can have the whole night to rest. And I was like, I know, but I love Lady Freak. What do I do? And I was like, fuck it, man. Let's do both. Let's just mm-hmm. go balls to the wall. So I did Lady Freak. I immediately went to LAX afterwards. I um, took a red eye out to New York, got back, you know, got to New York at like 9 a.m. I think I got the topics then. That And I'd, I'd seen the show a bunch, but I'd never done the panel at Nightly Show before. Right. So I was nervous. And then I just like slept a little bit during the day, came up with bits did the show, and then right afterwards I had a meeting with uh, Larry and with Rory Albanese and Amy Ozels, who are uh, our executive producer and showrunner, and, um, and and we uh, uh, drank a bit mm-hmm. in, in Amy's office and talked for like two hours and got to know each other, and it was just as fun. I didn't know where the conversation was going. I was like, I love these people. This is really fun. And then at the very end they were like, oh, yeah, do you want to join the show? And I'm like, yes. Now, when you're doing panel, knowing it's an audition, yeah. and then doing interviews – casual drinking interviews immediately after that <laughs> how much are you trying to keep it 100 oh well in that the nice thing about drinking is that you end up having to keep it 100 because mm-hmm. you know your inhibitions are down so i was but i, I feel like there, there's not too much that i would have wanted to hide or like not be upfront with about anyway mm-hmm. um so i don't know i felt i felt relaxed they they set this amazing relaxed convivial tone that made me feel like whether or not this is an interview that leads to something who knows? Just go with it. It was a very like yes end situation. I didn't know when I got there that that would be happening after the show. 
Um, but you know, who am I? Who am I to say right. no to that? That was that was really fun. And then was uh, you get the you get the job? You come back to New York. Yeah, like like a week and a half, two weeks later, uh, maybe even less than that. I just gathered all my stuff um, and then flew out like as soon as I could. And then the nightly nightly segment. Uh huh. Whose idea was that? I. How did that come together? I don't remember. I the the origin. I I remember one meeting where Rory. Rory Albanese was like, oh, yeah, didn't we have that idea where Grace plays like that entertainment reporter? And so it had been discussed at some point about doing a parody of the show, but it was not called Nightly Nightly mm-hmm. at that point, And, like, the vibe of it hadn't been determined. So um, we, we – and, I, gosh, I even forget the first time that we did it. I know it was before Christmas for sure. And, um, and I just remember, like, it was so over the top. It felt like it needed all these, like, little dancey moves. <laughs> Because it just, it's sort of like that, that winking sly, I can't believe that I just said that. Am I right? That wasn't necessarily scripted, but was like complicit, you know, was sort of like subtext in it. So, um, yeah. And and then the first time we did it, it was just like, oh, we should keep doing that for sure. We had the little graphics come up and I recorded Mm -hmm. the voiceover for nightly, nightly, which, uh, you know, is is somebody the other day asked me for it as a ringtone, (laughs) which maybe I should try to work on. I, I, I would, uh. God bless the human who uses that as a ringtone, but I, I love that idea. But that's a sign that a segment is a hit. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Want it as a ringtone. Yeah, when people want it as a ringtone and as like little little picks and how, gifts and stuff. How easy was it for you to slip back to being a part of a of a show instead of being the lead? Oh, very face of the show. Very easy. Because very easy. Very easy. I mean, you know, this is a show where I'm just learning so much. I mean. Just from Larry alone, you know, he has just so much experience and he's so intelligent and he's so, like, kind and judicious about how he picks things that it was very easy to see that, like, you know, being able to work with him Mm -hmm. and to get his notes and inspiration every day was, like, so much more important than, like, having my name on a marquee. That doesn't matter. You know, it's like – it's – I just feel like like the kinds of lessons that I'm learning here are are just so much greater, you know. And, it, and it's interesting. We always think like, oh, maybe you'll learn the most when you do the most. I am doing even more now than I maybe not more work wise than I was at Fuse, but quite a bit. Um, but it was very easy. It wasn't a question. It was like, yeah, this is a great opportunity. Also, it's you know Comedy Central, which I've wanted to work with for a very long time, and you know the the caliber of producers and writers in the show are so awesome. It was like I knew this was going to be a step up, no matter what. What's the what's the last great lasting piece of advice you've received over the years? I really think that Conan's advice about working hard and being kind is the most lasting piece because I mean we were talking a little bit about this, but like right. you have these egomaniacs like Trump and Kanye right now who are just so brutally self-serving and so egotistical and maniacal. And I don't understand how they are where they are, but I feel like they're anomalies. I really want to believe that the kinder that you are to people and the more of a team player you are, the better that it is ultimately. That's really important to me. And also the working hard thing. Like there's a lot of, we're in this era of, we're in this era of, of social media where self-promotion feels like that's sometimes more of the job than I really wish it it had to be. I mean, I get it. We have right. to promote our own stuff. We have to put ourselves out, ourselves out there. Um, but sometimes it feels like that comes at the expense of talent and comedy and dedication and work. It's feel, it feels like it doesn't really matter what I have to promote as long as I'm promoting something, anything myself. 
And that is like, to me, super problematic. It just feels like we're almost rewarding people who are super like self-promoting more so than we are talent. And right. that's something that I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't love that. Right. The hustle gets rewarded more than the actual work. Yeah. Or, well, yes, to an extent, I, I mean the self-promotion hustle, mm -hmm. the like, look at me doing this thing is more important than like, well, what is it that you're doing? What is the thing? Yeah. What is the thing? <laughs> what about the thing? What about the thing? Yeah. 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 So, so that's something. I certainly feel watching this presidential election that's happening way too often. Oh, that consistently. The media is talking about everything but the actual thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's the show. It's the showmanship that's like this bravado that I feel like is just more prominent because of social media. And we reward it. Right. You know, it's like the more followers you have, suddenly the better person you are, or the more talented you are. And I don't think that I don't think that that's the case. I mean, I hear things about like certain networks not taking meetings with people who don't have more than 100 thousand followers on Instagram or something. And I'm like, is that where we're at? Where that matters more than just like, I fucking worked, you know, my way up and I work in, you know, basements and like have dedicated my life to this craft. Like what, what, what's going on? I don't know if you see that. And in fact, I'm actually curious about your POV on that. It's, it's one of those lazy traits that, that businesses often have where they see, yeah, Oh, there's something we can quantify, even though that's not a thing. Right. Just like looking at ratings when you're yes. on a small cable channel, and yet the ratings matter. Right, right. They look at your Twitter following as if that's a stamp of approval. or Exactly. Or even more of a lazy feature. They go, well, that's automatically going to translate into ratings. Right. You're going to bring right. those people every night on the yeah. show when – those numbers don't necessarily mean what no. you think they mean. No, they don't. There have been enough case studies at this point where anytime that happens, it's like, you should know better. You should know right. better. You should know that doesn't translate. Like, I'm not even going to feel bad for you if it doesn't work for you. Cause, you know. Right. If you have a million Twitter followers, 900,000 of those people don't even pay attention. Exactly. 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 <laughs> they just clicked a button once. Right. So, right. Exactly. So that. So that's that why. That doesn't like, mean they'll keep clicking a button. No. 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 One click is all the energy they have to exert. <laughs> Three is too many. Um. But yeah, that's that's why like thinking back to Conan's adage of just working really hard still resonates because it's like, even though those people might get more opportunities or might be lauded more, who cares? You know, you still like at the end of the day, just put your head down and do good shit and be nice. Please be nice. There's a lot of not niceness, which I don't like. So on the flip side, yes. if someone is in college or is in law school and wants to be in comedy or show business, yeah. what's the first thing you tell them? I think they have to create their own stuff, no matter what. But it's more important that they create something that they like and that they put it out there consistently than that they do whatever they can to get 100,000 followers. Because there's that temptation of like, ooh, I could do this one scandalous thing or like do something super sexy or whatever just to get likes. That's not going to – that doesn't yield, in my opinion, a long-run career. Um, but I think self-creation, you have to – creating your own shit is the most important thing. And you have to do it a lot. There's – I've had like a lot of conversations with people over the years where artists are sometimes afraid to release their material. They might write a lot of stuff or they might do videos, but they're like, oh, but it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's never going to be good initially. That's that's fine. Like, But what's important is that you are as prolific as possible and put shit out there. And, and that's why the whole self-promotion thing is like – 
don't have to promote everything like it's, you know, the next Sasha Baron Cohen movie. Right. doesn't matter. Like, just do, the fact that you're doing it is what matters. So you do have to be scrappy about it at the beginning because, you know, no one's, again, no one's going to give you a talk show out of absolutely nowhere. But if you show that you can do it over time and you get better at it and really dedicate your, your you know, resources to getting good at it, then I think you'll you'll get where you want to be. Well, Grace, I think you're a prime example of your own advice. Oh, creating your own content and being scrappy and getting to a point where you're really worth watching every well, time you're on screen. You're so sweet. Thank you. So thank you for inviting me into your home. To of talk course. About it. And Lady Freak, by the way, can we talk Lady Freak one quick second? Yeah. No, we can't. Oh, okay. Lady Freak, I'm very excited about, is coming uh, to New York for the very first time this Saturday, March 12th at Union Hall, <laughs> which I can't wait for. My co-host Jen Bartels and I are pumped to do it. We have Leah Delaria from Orange is the New Black uh, amongst another, a panel of all lady guests, which is going to be great. And then our next show in uh, LA is Saturday, March 26th at UCB Franklin, 10 mm-hmm. p.m. She's going to be something new we've never done before. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see you get your freak on. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. Yeah. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.